So I'm going to come down and join this table and let's have a conversation that's around these three approaches that we're suggesting you involve yourself with in drawing conclusions from today. Daniela, um, <coughs> there were three things that we put. What's the thing that you agreed with perhaps most strongly or disagreed with perhaps most strongly or alternatively that's just like that resonates, I'm going to do something about it. Pick one. What's the one you'd run with first up and how does it connect with some of the things we've heard today? Guess. I think it's pretty easy <laughs> which one I pick. With, um, I'll definitely go with the sustainability one. <laughs> really? Um, yeah, and I, I, I mean, I must confess, uh, the first job I had when I came to Australia was assessing generation investment management from an ESG perspective. It was probably in my first week um, when I was not in my current role and I was at Hesta, and I was always, always so impressed about how authentic they were about their approach. And, and so it was very interesting to hear David's perspective. Um, the one point that I was thinking I would like to take further, he did talk about impact, he thought, talked about externalities, and he talked about ethics. And those are words that in my almost 15 years careers I've actually learned, uh, in sustainable investment, I've actually learned to stay away from because of the eyebrows raised that you get from many people in the investment community. However, I feel that that's changing a little bit and it's becoming more and more material because it is those ethics and externalities that are not being transformed into regulation. And we're actually seeing that play out very clearly in Europe. And we're seeing businesses um, that are getting impacted by modern slavery regulation and going out of business because people have ethics, they care, they elect governments that care, they don't want to go work for industries that they see as dirty, and that eventually ends up having a cost. So I think I just wanted to kind of take that concept of the externality and why it matters. And then the other point that I wanted to draw on from, from David's um, presentation was a little bit on this, it, there's always a win-win with ESG or sustainability with the, uh, a win-win with sustainability. And, and, and that concept of ESG, if you tick the ESG box, then you're fine. You're fine with climate change. And I think that's where there's uh, a big opportunity, really understanding the interplay between uh, different the E and the S and different E issues. And so something we've heard a lot today mentioned, uh, I would say more high level, is the energy transition. We've heard about climate change and, and how much is that gonna cost us? But something I think it's to a certain extent misunderstood or is not necessarily how, it's, it's how ESG in a way it's creating more cost. It's creating a feedback loop that potentially is creating bottlenecks for climate change solutions. And just to give you a, an idea of what I'm talking about, you have, electric vehicles that require minerals and materials like lithium, and yet permits are being withdrawn for mines that are producing that lithium. That is not an isolated case. We see more and more biodiversity regulation, permitting risk is becoming more and more important. And that's creating a lot of bottlenecks that is gonna make the energy transition potentially more expensive than what many 
people are considering. Okay, thank you. Let's do a quick round robin and get reaction to what it is that Daniela has just uh, expressed as it relates to your asset class, your, your, your uh, thinking, um, your role. Um, let's perhaps start, Richard, with you. Do you want to add anything or respond to anything or push back on anything from what Daniela said just now? Um, no, not really. I, I think ESG is one of those things that has become part of uh, investing going forward. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going to be rosy, but the opportunity set is, is coming through there. It's going to leave, leave a lot of stranded assets as well, so it's a big risk that's got to be taken care of. I, like one of the things I've sort of had an encounter recently with a doctor who said they were part of the problem because they were keeping the human race alive. <laughs> the opportunity, uh, sorry, the fact that someone thinks like that, um, I think capital, ca capital can actually find a solution through this. I just wish we'd had a carbon tax a long time ago. It would have made things a lot easier to allocate costs. It would have been a lot easier to do things. But now I think uh, the, the real issue though is I think society's a little bit ahead of companies right now. I don't think companies have actually digested this issue. We've asked people the questions and they just can't give us the answers, so. Okay. Uh, look, I think of it pretty simply through a lens of, you know, every company, every industry that we invest in, we think about risk and sustainability of cash flows, of, of, of um, the way that company's going to operate into the future. And that I think, you know, from that perspective, I think everything uh, that Daniela said, you know, completely resonates. But it's, it's quite simple from our perspective. Okay. Jacob? Uh, look, I think um, from a pragmatic value perspective, I think it just throws up lots of opportunities. I mean, the market is very inefficient at discounting non-linear change and uh, the sorts of investment uh, that at least decarbonisation requires. Um, yeah, the average investor just cannot get their head around the size of the investment, and I think that means there'll be lots of inefficiency and, uh, and there'll be a lot of misunderstanding of what's 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 good what's bad um you know a utility that has emissions but has a clear pathway to decarbonize should actually be supported by investors who want to have impact but a lot of those companies will actually get screened out on a backward looking basis so i think you know you can find value in this you can be a really i think forward forward looking esg investor and also generate alpha Just to add to that, for us, it's very much around the, the rate of change. So the alpha source is actually the companies on a journey of improvement or those that are going the wrong way. And so building on what you said, Jacob, I think you can find companies that are in a bad place today where you can generate alpha on that rate of improvement as they go forward. But, and as an active investor, you can be part of that conversation to actively encourage that rate of change. Tim, response? Uh, the thought that keeps won't leave my head is there's this fundamental assumption you'll get better returns by investing sustainably. What if they're not better? Then what do you do? How, I wanted to ask David, what would your strategy be if you knew your returns are going to be 1% lower, but you still think it was the right thing to do? Because right now he's got the best of both worlds, the way he describes it. What if that wasn't the case? And then what do we do? Anybody want to pick that up? Change oh. the benchmark. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, I was, I'll pick it up. Like it's a, again, it's, it's also, uh, you can't just, I, I don't think you can change a current established mandate. Like, you know, we've got funds that are 20 years old. 
people that signed up for those funds, did they signed up for something different. Like, you can screen out stuff for risk, but to screen out something that has a higher potential return, you've got to be very careful what you do there. You can, like, you can set up a different portfolio to do that, um, and you can actually have uh, restrictions around the investments you'll do in different portfolios, but you can't change midstream. I actually think that's incorrect, and I, and I think it's a bit of greenwashing that a lot of people have been doing, and they're going to get in conflict. It's going to be an issue, and they're going to get in conflict with their investors, and they should do if they've changed the way they invest without consultation. Like, you just have to get a sign-off. Let's pick up um, another conclusion that comes from what you've heard during the course of, of the day. Um, Richard, you've just been talking, so why don't you grab the continuation and say, well, out of all the things you've heard, do you want to start with something you agree with or disagree with? or something you're saying, no, no, that's something I reckon I should do some thinking about? Uh, oh, the thing that I found most interesting today was uh, Gigi, Gigi Foster. I thought hers was very interesting, this whole conflict between the greater good and individual rights. I think that's a big issue. Yeah, I thought that was quite interesting because that, that's a conflict that we've got in society right now. Uh, it's also going to be one of those things that, that resides. I also think this whole idea about ignoring macro, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't agree with that. <laughs> okay, just macro, it's like a, and there was one saying where there was a, like it's all about cash flow, not about macro. Macro is your discount rate for the cash flow. I agree with the cash flow, it is all about cash flow, but I don't agree that it doesn't include macro. And this whole idea of ignoring macro means you're going to hide behind a benchmark. I sort of think that's not active management. You know, if you want to do um, indexing, that's fine. But if, you, if you're being paid for it to be an active manager, you need to take a view. Now, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get it right, but uh, if you're not willing to do that, that's not active management. OK, let's do another round. Robin, Katie, how do you respond to what Richard's saying? Yeah, I agree with you in terms of the macro. I think it's, um, when I think about, you know, our Australian equities benchmark, if you added, you know, financials, resources, um, consumer, uh, you know, media, media, you've got more than half the benchmark and they've all got a really important macro element to them. So uh, I do agree with you. Um, having said that, I do think this story of cash flow is really important. Cash flow hasn't been important over the last number of years. We've been, I think um, Ron talked about it being a, a sort of 10-year macro bet around interest rates. And in that environment, you know, long duration, no cash flow, uh, you know, high risk is, is one. Um, but I think cash flow is going to be super important as we go forward, even more so than it has been. Uh, because what's going to win, what, what has been winning has been that multiple re-rate. What is going to win going forward is going to be the company that generates the cash flow and compounds the earnings. Uh, so the, the multiple re-rate was the story of, of the last 10 years. I think that the story of going forward will be the, the earnings compounder. And I think that's particularly relevant in an environment where you've got low growth. Um, one thing we didn't talk about today, which I thought was interesting, is what happens over the horizon of the soft landing or the hard landing or whatever the landing looks like. Um, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, and certainly the investment horizons that we, we invest against, we're definitely thinking about that. Um, and when we think over that soft landing or hard landing or whatever sort of landing it is, um, we're really thinking about a low growth environment uh, where you've got 
population headwinds, which is another thing we, we really didn't talk about today, uh, where, you've got, uh, where you haven't got that tailwind of interest rates. Uh, and so once again, that, that growth company um, that's winning market share, that's compounding cash flows, uh, is going to be the winner. Thank you, Katie. Um, Katie's added some new dimensions into the, uh, into the conversation. Who'd like to pick up one of those uh, threads that uh, Katie's put in? As an equities manager, yeah. <laughs> as a global equities manager, I'd, I'd have to um, agree just also on the, you know, obviously um, just talking more about valuation, I think is, is going to matter a lot more going forward. Um, you know, discount rates are, are higher. Um, I mean, picking up on Ron Temple's point around macro dispersion, stock dispersion, you know, we would, would, would agree with all that. Um, actually, you know, we, we actually enjoy that environment. You know, we, we think that's a, a, an, a, an environment that suits strategies that have some flexibility in terms of, you know, different levers to pull. Um, you know, even, you know, hedge funds have had a terrible, terrible reputation and well-deserved for a long period of time. But um, you know, long short funds, I think, can can come into their own in this type of environment where, you know, it's you've got policy volatility. It's it's here it's here to stay. I mean, um, irrespective of where inflation settles, you know, we have fiscal. We're much in this environment of fiscal activism. Governments want to solve problems. Um, yeah, the U.S. hasn't you know it hasn't even repaired the fiscal deficit, and they've just given an eight percent uh, pay rise to you know the, everyone on a pension. Um, which, you know, given inflation, it's probably, you know, it's probably acceptable, but it's probably not acceptable given the, the size of the deficit. Um, so that type of thing is going to be ongoing. Decarbonisation is a big policy. You know, it's going to be supported by government policy. And that makes it really hard for central banks to manage, manage the economy. Um, so volatility, and that probably drives lower multiples, and it probably means you need more, you know, flexibility in your investment uh, approach. There's a couple of uh, items you might want to pick up on, Daniela, about what's been said, or are you comfortable with where we're at? Look, I think it, it, it's a little bit related. Um, societies are changing, and they're asking different things from their politicians. And I think a little bit of the points that you've raised right now, it's politicians are reacting perhaps in a different way than how they have reacted before, because you have much more active people asking you for different things. So you have people asking you for more well-being, you have people asking for, for um, like wage improvements, uh, for better pension, better quality, quality of life. And, and the point that Gigi um, made earlier about income inequality, something I would have loved to hear more from her is, what are the externalities of that income inequality and what are the implications? How are governments going to try to correct that and what are the implications of all that? And it does look different in different markets. But I don't think that that's an issue that has been discussed in, in, in that level of, of detail and how that impacts things like the healthcare system and... and um, the fact that, for example, you have no nurses, nobody wants to work in healthcare, how are governments going to try to correct that and what does that mean, for example, for economies? Jim? I, I'm going to jump a little bit back to Katie's point about looking out a little bit beyond the horizon. In the, sort of the key theme I thought around this morning, a lot of it was around inflation. Mm. And 
it wasn't always clear whether people were talking about two years, three years, four years or longer. But if we start thinking about four years out, the, you know, Ron's point was like, I think inflation is going to be higher than we thought. And that was just sort of really interesting. And I think there were some dots that needed to be connected. You know, one of the ones that Ron raised briefly was the idea that unless the Fed gives up on their 2% per annum inflation mandate, if we're sitting on 35 well, we're basically going to be in recession in the United States for the next five years. Because if inflation's running at 35 they're going to keep putting interest rates up. And if inflation goes up anywhere, you know, and it's maybe they're just going to have to change the Fed's mandate. So that's kind of one thing, and what does that mean? The other one was, we didn't get onto, but it would have been really interesting, the discussion about artificial intelligence in the afternoon. It sounds like it's going to produce, produce massive productivity benefits. And possibly unemployment. And how is that going to be driving inflation up? That's got to be good for inflation. And, you know, and a little bit on to, you know, the assumption that China is no longer exporting deflation. Well, there are a lot of other countries in the world with low-paid workers who would love to have jobs. So, you know, maybe we're just going to... And we don't like China that much anymore. So we're going to move the place to other areas where there is inexpensive labour. So it's like looking out beyond a bit. There just seem to be a lot of different things that are going to come into play. Um, and if I have one final one, and I don't know if this is true, my kids tell me I'm a dinosaur and all this green energy is way cheaper than the existing stuff. Well, if that's true, and I suspect it possibly will be, well, all the green energy transformations is actually going to be driving costs down, not putting them up. So there's the bit you're not sure about whether it's true, whether you're a dinosaur or not. Oh, I know I'm a dinosaur. That is very clear. <laughs> Richard, you've got some uh, responses brewing to what Tim's just said. Uh, yeah, more generally, uh, like, I think the one thing we haven't really talked about is the generational change that's going through. I think that's probably the, one of the most significant issues that's coming through, that generational change. And the generation that's going to change things is getting hit by rising interest rates right now. They're, they're the people that have just bought a house in the last three years. They're the people between the ages of, say, 27 to 45. I think they're the guys that are really getting hurt right now. I think that's a big deal. And also the ageing population. We've gone out of this growth stage, and I hate to say it to equity people, but uh, interest rates have gone up 4.5%. You know, Fixed interest is back. The Pipco guys are a little bit right on that. Uh, you know, there there are big changes going on here, but I don't think I think the silver lining is interest rates have gone up four and a half percent. Again, markets are forecasting inflation, and I think everyone's in a bit of a uh, sorry inflation spiral here. I thought the pain report was really interesting. I, I love the uh, the comment. There's nothing ambiguous about the data. And I, I thought it was interesting. He's a bit, a bit of an emphatic bloke. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's, it's an interesting time, though, for that generational change because the generational change is very interesting because that's going to have a political impact that I don't think we've really talked about. And when this discussion around superannuation gets a bit rolling on, there's no doubt, in my mind, the tax benefits in superannuation are just over the top. And I know some people have made very good mileage out of franking and whatever, but this, these are big changes that are coming through, and I think they're the changes that are going to be sort of interesting. I do like some of the comments where some things weren't repriced. 
properly, like some people that the energy hasn't flowed through. And I think those variable, uh, sorry, long and variable lags, I'm not sure if anyone remembers their economics course, like that was how interest rates come through. We've had such a sharp increase in interest rates, I can't help but think the long and variable lags are still coming through the system. Sounds like it's still coming through with energy, the Lazar guy was talking about that. Um, sounds like it's still coming through in private markets, I think like I was talking about that. I, you know, I think there's some interesting stuff around it. The generational thing, the kids are all, our kids hate us for driving up property prices, and now we're getting them again. <laughs> now we've got our TD rates up while having to pay the higher interest rates. <laughs> they are filthy. It's too much, but I just wish they'd turn off the lights. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Katie. I'm going to shift the conversation a little. One of the, and I think, Jacob, you'll, you'll appreciate this as an active manager. One of the things that I've been thinking about that Ron from Lazard actually sort of started to call out was um, the sort of how we think about alpha and beta. When you've got a 10-year declining interest rate cycle and that macro beta bet that we talked about earlier, You've just, the beta is, it's all about, you don't actually have to worry about the alpha because the beta is so compelling. And so there was no value for alpha. And I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if that was actually part of the genesis of passive investing and index investing because people didn't, um, people didn't need to worry about the alpha because the beta was so good. And, you know, his, his comment was actually now it's time to worry about the alpha because the beta is going to be low. And, uh, you know, now you've got to think about where you're going to get that from. And... As an active manager, of course, that resonated with me. Um, but it is actually something that I've been thinking about, this whole shift of, um, you know, why passive... And, and I see it as a small-cap manager. You know, 40% of the small lords in Australia is now owned by passive index uh, and quant money. And then you add the industry super funds, who often feel a little bit like semi-passive money. Um, and you've got a very, very large part of even the small odds that is owned um, by that, that type of money. So the inefficiencies got bigger by virtue of, of the nature of the ownership um, and the environment, I think, you know, just drawing on Ron's point this morning, uh, feels like it's more conducive to alpha than ever because we've got cycles back. You know, we haven't had cycles now. We've got cycles back, you know, to your point, um, We've got volatility, and all of those things are really um, the environment that, that's rich for alpha opportunity. Whether we get them or not, Jacob, is another question, um, but that feels like all of the, the foundations that we really enjoy. But go disagree? Yeah, no, that's, I think that's, <laughs> as an active manager, it's hard to disagree with, the, uh, with that view. The, uh, possibly just the, you know, the drivers of that uh, I mean, we see it, all, see it all the time in terms of the flow, passive flow. I mean, Australian equities are probably the easiest example. Um, you know, Australian banks are facing the toughest environment they've faced in, in decades, and they're the most expensive banks in the world. Mm. They're thinly capitalised, and, uh, and they're, you know, they're facing a serious... For the first time, their, their, their credit is... You know, they could actually have credit impairments. And, uh, and they're very vulnerable. It's a great example of the macro dispersion and stock dispersion. So you think about what the Fed's doing. The US has a, you know, and this downward sloping yield curve versus every other major economy. So they've had, they have the highest, they have the highest short rates and the lowest long rates versus those short rates, and they still haven't created any looseness in the labor market. Mm. 
So we're at least going to have another three rate rises. And they're stimulating through the fiscal channel. So, you know, what does it do to all the... So the transmission mechanism is clearly not working. Monetary policy through interest rate rises is not actually slowing down the US economy. So they, you know, and that's because no one pays, no one has a variable rate mortgage. So what's it going to do to every economy in the world who prices their interest rates off the US, who does have variable rate mortgage markets, countries like Australia, Canada, the UK, Scandinavia, where, and where you have enormous household leverage, Australia, UK, Canada, Scandinavia. So you can go hunting in all these markets. And they're also, you know, interesting, you know, there's interesting macro trades, there's interesting single stock trades. And uh, that sort of environment we haven't had, I think, for a while. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really interesting. I think that's actually really true. This macro cycle is going to be very different for different countries. And that's going to be the fascinating thing about it. And I think the US actually probably does, probably does get out of this better. Their mortgage is going to reprice on average every 15 years. Ours reprice every 1.4 years. 1.4 years sort of lands us sort of around September. And New Zealand? Oh. <laughs> you got that one. Yeah, I would say New Zealand is uh, probably the, uh, as someone say, it's the, the kiwi in the coal mine. Uh, <laughs> rose, uh, interest rates by 50 basis points today to 475. And it looks like they're going well above five. Um, and I think they've got a very similar uh, mortgage market. They may even have some relationships with Australian banks. <laughs> so, you, Tim, your kids may not have to wait too long for a cheap house. <laughs> okay. I'm going to do um, a, a round in a minute for you to try and zero in on, okay, what, what's the one thing that you're for or against or going to investigate? I want, I want you to end up being able to say, okay, after all this conversation, here's the one thing I'd be running with. So before we get to that, any more conversation, any more comments that, like, um, you know, you've, you've thrown in, Katie, two or three ideas on the way past. Any more of those kinds of things, Daniela? Well, one of the points we haven't discussed much is private equity. And I did have, I mean, obviously, I'm not a portfolio manager and I'm not an investor myself, so my role is to bring the sustainability angle. But something I was surprised was um, that the speaker was talking about how private equity reduces the overall portfolio risk. And there was some response around that um, governance question. So somebody asked about the corporate governance. Uh, of the private equity itself. And one of the points that I've seen through my, my experience in, in private equity, it is ESG, you have zero visibility. It doesn't matter how much reporting you are getting on a quarterly basis. It is, in general, very hard to assess and that transparency around ESG. So it's not necessarily, that, that, that view of risk, not necessarily, it's not necessarily including ESG risk. Comments? I guess it highlights the old thing. This industry routinely refers to volatility as risk, and it isn't. You've just got to be... There are times when volatility is not a bad proxy for risk, and there's a lot of times it's a terrible proxy for risk. So if you say, look, it reduces the volatility of your portfolio, fine. 
but it's not the same as reducing the risk of your portfolio. Uh, private debt, private equity, private real estate uh, don't remove volatility from your portfolio. They just hide it. I, I disagree with that. I, I think most markets overstate risks. You know, the, most markets are way more volatile than they should be, traded markets. And so the reality probably lies somewhere in the middle. Traded markets are probably more volatile than they should be, and clearly private markets aren't nearly as volatile as they should be. But the, the, under, the fundamental risk could be much the same. It's just the volatility is different. Probably the biggest challenge, I think, for the you know, private equity going forward would simply be how, how much of a tailwind... Obviously, low interest rates were, were a big tailwind. Um, uh, probably even disruption in the economy to a certain extent um, you know, that disruption was driven by the world's biggest companies, which are listed, and many of the victims were smaller companies, and they had to, they had to restructure, and I think private equities played a role in helping that, you know, that, that tier, but it's still amazing that we've gone through a number of cycles. We haven't had a proper cleansing uh, credit cycle, like even, you know, credit spreads blew out, but there was no, no bodies actually floated to the surface, <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I think 2008 did cleanse a little bit of credit. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, that's more than... That's a fair way... That's a fair while ago, though. <laughs> no, no, I agree. Well, I, I, sorry, if you were to say that, then Australia has been a long time before it's had a recession, so probably Australia's got more cleansing to do than most other economies. Uh, to be honest, I, I, actually, I believe that does have to happen. Rising interest rates means people that can't sustain as much debt. Like, if you, people can't borrow as much to buy a house right now. Same for companies. Companies can't borrow as much to buy another company now because they just don't have the same borrowing capacity. So, uh, definitely, that's the case. But we have had cleansers, and to be honest, there's been multiple cleansers. The banking system is actually in a better position than it has been for years offshore. Onshore, it's been a very comfortable oligopoly, and uh, it hasn't had a recession for a while. I think it's going to be curious. Uh, we had a recession during the GFC. It just didn't show up in the data. I mean, no, no, no. When unemployment goes through the roof, is that a recession? I reckon it is. If you lose your job, that's much closer to recession than... See, with the value of all the rocks we were selling plummeted. That doesn't show up in the GDP figures. The GDP figures just count the number of rocks you sell. And so... Our nominal GDP, that's not deflated, actually went down. But because there was such a big GDP deflated, it looked like the real GDP went sideways. It's like it was a, it was a statistical anomaly. That was a recession. We could, have, we could have a really interesting discussion on it when uh, uh, currency rates change, like our purchasing value, our general wealth, uh, actually went up post-GFC with the currency. And we also had that big benefit from China uh, building out, the building out that's now collapsed in the last 12 months. I actually, you know, I, what was the comment uh, Keating said about how it's a souffle that may not rise twice? Uh, you know, I think maybe we've got to think about how this China thing, I think everyone's very optimistic on China. I mean, I'm not as optimistic as I was. Anyway, that's a, it's always a good discussion. Well, I think it's good. Like, the China reopening will be about, you know, you know let's call it services, similar to the US. Um, you know, it's just a rebalancing between, you know, away from goods consumption back to, 
you know, services and service consumption shines way below trend. They have a 14% of household income excess savings. Yeah, the starting point is pretty similar to where the, the US was as they were reopening. So I think um, you can, it, it's not going to be a, you know, iron ore led reopening. It's not a, I don't think it's a, you know, if you're trying to play at China, if you're so worried about geopolitical concerns that you're taking all your China exposure via oil, iron ore, um, I think that won't work. I think you need to be exposed to the direct beneficiaries of away from home consumption. So, let's do a quick walkthrough um, with, in the first instance, your, your asset class outlook, the specialty that you've got, or in Daniela's case, the, the, the space you're in, the outlook for that. And then I'd like you to pick one of the, the um, agreement or disagreement or investigation that you're going to take away from uh, this, this program today. So let's do the first run. Katie? Yes, so I'm an Australian equities investor uh, and, you know, clearly earnings are in a downtrend uh, and that's going to provide pressure, um, you know, for equity prices, no question about that. Um, within that, I think there's opportunity. Um, you know, we obviously saw a pretty heavy risk-off environment last year. Uh, we saw small caps off 18%. We saw a lot of growth stocks off um, quite materially, you know, 30 40%. Uh, so within that, um, so we're now we're seeing small caps trading at sort of 20-year discounts to large caps against a backdrop of Australia looking relatively good. Uh, again, and I'm talking about, you know, relative to the US, relative to the UK, relative to other countries. Um, Australia seems relatively well positioned. Um, small caps tend to be beneficiaries of that, together with the higher Australian dollar, which they tend to import, um, you know, is also to their benefit. So there are definitely opportunities within that. Um, you know, we're finding a lot of companies that have growth characteristics that are independent of the economy, um, which we think will um, do well. Uh, so there are opportunities, but we're mindful of a, of a backdrop where um, earnings estimates are too high and, and there's pressure. So I'm going okay. to buy ASML. Was that that company that yes, Griffin exactly. told me about before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jacob, quick uh, outlook in a broad sense. We'll come back for the second round. Yeah, look, I think the at global equities at a benchmark level, <clears throat> I think it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge, I think, to generate, you know, the sorts of returns that we've been used to in, in the recent, in the last decade. But when you go beneath the benchmark, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of dispersion. You still, you have um, Europe that trades on 13 times, you have Asia, EM, let's call it 11 times, or China's on 11 times. Uh, and then you go to the US and it's on roughly, you know, 18 times. And so I think that's, you've got one large, really large expensive market where the economy has to do very good, very well to justify the, the big premium. And I do think, you know, we're, we're in a sort of different environment of more volatility, and I think that will weigh on economic volatility, and that will weigh on multiples. So I do sort of, I'm sympathetic to, uh, you know, Ron Temple's view, sort of view of the world. Um, I would just add, a, add into his sort of narrative volatility, not so much obsessing about where inflation sits or nominal GDP growth, but just being, getting used to much more amplitude in the economic cycle. And then, look, in terms of uh, uh, Jonathan's outlook, I, I just don't know what getting back to normal really means. I, I don't think we ever go back to, to normal. Uh, um, I think it's more like the 70s and 80s. 
rather than normal. And, uh, and what I really want to investigate further is just this idea around inflation. Like, I see from the discussion around inflation, you can see one really positive tale and one really negative tale. And the, the really positive tale is the adoption of AI. And, uh, and, you know, I think you need to think about that from, you know, not it obviously deflate services where all of the inflation came from. Um, um, and, but then at the other end, the negative tail, which is the massive amount of investment that we need in decarbonisation. I really just, I don't sort of agree with Tim's view that that's deflationary. I think it's massively inflationary. It's labour intensive. It's capital intensive. We don't have the skills to do it. Um, and, uh, and it solves for risk, not productivity. Okay. Richard? Uh, yeah, I, I still think we've got a bit of a hangover from COVID. Um, and I think that's why I, I think Gigi's presentation was interesting, because I think there is a big, huge spend that's happened in uh, most developed countries, a huge fiscal spend. And I think, basically, we haven't held the politicians to count. Uh, we, we're actually willing to uh, give uh, reserve Reserve Bank governors a bit of a slap on the hand and say they got it wrong. But to be honest, uh, basically we threw too much money uh, at a problem and we could have used the money a, a little bit more effectively. Um, so I think that's something that I'll be looking into a little bit more. I'm also very curious because we're going through a phase. I think the big phase in interest rates we've seen in the last 12 months, the yield curves that I'm seeing are all... Uh, there's one that's positive right now, that's Australia. Most of the others around the world are negative. Um, and some have moved a lot. Like emerging markets have really been smashed. Um, I look at Brazil. Brazil went from 2% interest rates, cash rates to 12, um, and it's still going. Right. So I, I, th I think there's, a, there's still a lot to play for this year. Wouldn't be dead for quids. It's going to be a lot of fun. OK. Tim, final comments, then Daniela, and then back to Katie, because she didn't quite I have the chance. I pick up the Jacob. It's my kids that think it's deflationary, not me. I just don't know. But the broad, uh, the a narrow point actually is one of the ideas that came through, particularly this morning. I think both Dan and Ron mentioned, which I think is a really interesting idea at the moment. Uh, looking at uh, CPI-linked bonds, where in that part of your portfolio you've got pretty unchallenging uh, break-even inflation assumptions, like two and a half or something like that. You'll get decent returns if inflation comes in on target, but where the risks are mainly appears to be the upside, you know, that's one, one asset that gives you some sort of inflation protection in an environment where most of the assets where you think you might have got some inflation protection, like gold, like infrastructure, like property, they've all failed. In fact, inflation-linked bonds have failed too, but they've failed because they've gone from very poor uh, real returns to actually decent ones. From here on in, I think they look all right. Daniela. Yeah, um, so I, I guess the point where I will continue talking about is just the energy transition has it's complex, it's complex investing, it's complex understanding it, but I do think that there are some opportunities that might not necessarily come the shape and form that everyone has been um, understanding and expecting it, so it might not be just through infrastructure and investing in uh, renewable energy projects. There is potentially a pretty big role, for example, for China to be playing that decarbonisation if we think, for example, we're 
most of the uh, electric vehicle uh, manufacturers, EV technologies, and who is processing all of the critical materials that are needed for all the decarbonization technologies. A lot of it is happening in China, uh, and they do have a 2060 target that they're aggressively pursuing. So it doesn't necessarily come in the shape of informed that we've normally thought about it like more clean techy, but there is that other uh, angle. So it requires that deep understanding, and I would say definitely um, understanding of ESG risks, because the consumer of a Tesla doesn't want to buy a Tesla that has been manufactured by modern slaves. And so it's a, that deep understanding of ESG to really um, benefit from the energy transition. Last word. Uh, so, so one topic I think we went to the edge of that we didn't probably go as far as that I think we should and I will be thinking about more is, is about liquidity. You know, we talked a lot, the, the day started with talking about how the tide's going out into, you know, liquidity um, is becoming an issue. We're starting to see the second derivative effect of that with, you know, real estate funds in the US closing their to redemptions, um, housing cycles uh, moving out longer. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of asset classes rely on um, liquidity and um, turnover of recycling of capital to be effective. And I think, you know, we talked, when we talked about private debt, when we talked about private equity, a number of other asset classes, we didn't talk about what happens when the tide's going out on liquidity and um, whether we're pricing that liquidity risk appropriately. And, you know, I, I, my thesis is we, we haven't been. And I think going forward, we need to. I mean, I work in public markets and we test the liquidity of our portfolios every day and we're probably in the most liquid part of the, the asset spectrum. Um, but we haven't really talked enough, I don't think, and I'll, you know, as I said, I'll be thinking more about um, a number of these other asset classes. Um, are we, have we priced liquidity appropriately and uh, what does it mean if we haven't going forward?